You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host Cindy Lin. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, to live and to sell. Welcome back to season ten. This is episode ten. This episode is brought to you by SocialLightVault.com. Are you overwhelmed with the marketing your home staging business? Stop wasting time worrying or wondering if you're doing the right things. From social media to email newsletter that get attention of listing agents, Social Light Vault makes marketing simple and effective. You don't need a huge marketing budget. You don't need a huge audience either. You just need real marketing tools that work and the right sales funnel to deliver new leads, even when you aren't working. The team at Social Light specializes in marketing for home stagers. Get started today by going to SocialLightVault.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the last episode of season ten. So this year it's almost over. We're in mid-November now, so it's pretty crazy. I have to say, I mean, this has been a pretty eventful year, and we've grown a lot. I think with the school, so that's always very exciting. And just a reminder, we have one last free training that's happening in December. So it's going to be a really good one. It's being put on by、uh, Michelle Williams, who is also our guest today. As you know, she's been on our show before, and she's an absolute amazing home staging business coach and also profit first coach. So Michelle is very sought after for her ability to easily explain complex business principles and processes in a simple, straightforward way. She began her career in financial software design before starting her first company in year 2000, providing soft furnishings for the home industry. With a varied background in working in small, medium, large businesses, Michelle has a great grasp on the scalability factors that are essential to growing a business. And as a certified profit-first professional, Michelle strives to help creative business owners. Focus on the financial health and profitability of their companies. So it's really exciting that Michelle is coming back to do the free training for us. Because if you sign up for the free training, which is called Know Your Numbers, we're gonna go over your financial health as your business. But also, there's gonna be a free five day challenge health checkup. So it's gonna check the financial health of your company. So I think it's gonna be a really good training. You're gonna get a lot out of it. Because even just with interviewing Michelle, she's gave so much information. So I think the free training is going to be really awesome. So feel free to join us. Just go to sageformore.com/slash/freetraining. I also put that link in the show notes as well. And there is going to be a replay for a limited time, but only if you sign up. So even if you cannot make it, you can still do the five day email financial checkup challenge. Uh, the week before the free training, and then join us for the free training or watch a replay. So it's going to be a really good one. I'm super excited. Also, since the podcast is ending in this episode, we're actually going to do some mini episodes during the hiatus. So when I did the free training in November on marketing, I got a lot of questions about marketing your home staging business. So I'm going to do mini episode of that to go over questions that I hadn't. Had a chance to cover during a webinar, or some of them are pretty specific. So I thought it would be really cool to do some mini episodes for the podcast. So those are going to start、um, fairly soon, actually, probably within the one week or so. So you're going to start seeing them popping up. 
So in order to access those episodes, you just need to subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever you use to listen to your podcast, because that's going to ensure you to be able to download every single episode that I put out. All right. And then you can also submit your questions. I have put in the link. Just go to our show notes or go to our blog, which is stationmore.com slash blog. You're going to access the show notes there or on the blog sidebar, you will see an area where you can put in your question. So you can submit your questions to me that way and I'll answer to them on the show. All right, so let's get started. Hi, Michelle. It's so nice to have you back on the show. So I'm super excited to dive into today's topic and talk about profits. So can we talk a little bit about profit margin? What exactly is it and how can we find it? Sure. And thanks again, Cindy, for having me back. You and I really hit it off on that last podcast episode that we did. So I'm glad to be able to get to come back and even dig in further this time. So what profit margin is in general, margin simply means percentage. Okay. And so if we're looking at this as what profit percentage do we have instead of profit margin, if we were to substitute the word, it kind of creates a little more clarity. And so you're saying profit is a percentage of something. And so we're looking at profit margin. And the reason I say that is because there could be gross profit margins and net profit margins. And what they really are indicating is what we're comparing the profit amount to. Okay. So if we're talking about a gross profit margin, then we're saying we want to compare the gross sales or gross income to, to the profit that we have after cost of goods has been removed. And that's what we're going to do, compare those two. And so then you're asking yourself, profit is what percentage of total sales? And that's how you're going to come up with the profit margin. I think that is great. And so how can we identify the income and the profit we need for the work that we do? Oh my gosh, that's a loaded question, right? I know. I mean, I think it's so difficult for a service-based business because we had to talk about our overall overhead, but also individual job costs as well. Right. And so when I look at this particular question, how can we identify income and profit we need for our work? I just want to say, first of all, this can be a very deep and a very wide conversation. So let me start putting kind of some boundaries around it so that we know what we're looking at. First and foremost, I would say not every business owner needs the same income and the same profit. It can vary. It varies based on the part of the world or the part of the country that we're in. It changes based on the type of business we have, the amount of hours we work, and the setup we have, right? Do we have employees? Do we work outside of our home? Do we have a warehouse? Are we completely service-based with or without inventory? So all of those things come into play. One of the things that I love to do in my coaching and in my understanding of financials course is do what I call backwards financials. And so that starts by saying, tell me what salary you want to make. Tell me what tax brackets you're in. Tell me how much profit you want to have in the company. And we start looking at hard numbers, okay? So that's where you would go back into your home and, you know, either alone or with a partner or spouse or whatever, you would start to determine, like if you were out on the free market, what kind of salary would you go for? Is that a fair and reasonable salary for your staging company? And if so, we're gonna, we might start using those numbers. What type of business do we need to build? So we backwards engineer this thing. I truly think the income that you need and the profit that you need is enough to pay yourself a fair wage for the work that you do and allow your business to be sustainable. 
And so that's what we do. We start by going, how much money do you need to make? Now let's build backwards and then add in, of course, the overhead, the operating expenses of the company. That moves us up to gross profit. Like if I know your profit, your salary, and your taxes, and then I back up and look at what are the operating expenses, and then I back up again, I got to gross profit. Then if there are any cost of goods, I add those in, and now I know exactly what type of total sales you need to bring in. It's like puzzle pieces. It is. But I think I think for newer stagers, it's really difficult to gauge because they're still new in the business. They're not sure exactly how often they're going to be doing jobs and how much they can charge. So what would be a really good way for them to find out what would be a reasonable pricing that they can charge in the marketplace? Sure. So a couple things, and it is hard. It's hard no matter when you come in, whether you come in for the first time as a stager, a designer, a photographer, a graphic artist, you know, it doesn't matter. All of it is new to us. And then it's added complexity because we're running the company. The first thing to do is understand what is the pricing in your area, right? Like I can't go in somewhere and say, I charge 400 an hour and everybody around me is charging 30 unless I have the, you know, most huge value proposition that everybody in the world says, you know, where have you been all my life? And that's not what happens in most cases. And so therefore we need to know what the market we're in will bear, what it will sustain. And so we have to start kind of pulling this together. Here's the point that I want to make. If we just take the work that comes to us and almost say that we're taking what's coming versus going after what we want, we usually will settle for a lot less salary. So let's say that we realized we needed to make, let's say $50,000, okay, just to be able to pay all of our bills and keep a roof over our head. Let's say that's what we needed to make and we could take our taxes out of that. Then what we do is we build a business and build a structure that allows us to do that, right? So we've backed it up. We can then start parsing out, what if I can only charge 75 an hour or let's say it's... $1,500 for every staging job. You know what I mean? We could either break it apart by hour. We can break it apart by if you have a flat rate, then you start to see how many jobs you need to do at those rates to make the numbers that you need to make. Now we have a sales goal. Then that gives us something to go after. So instead of waiting on it to come to me and acting like I can only live off what other people give to me by giving me the business, I'm going to actively turn it and go get the business because now I know what my sales goals are. I know what it's going to take to go get it. And I'm just going to go out and pound doors till somebody says yes, or until a lot of somebody say yes. I love that you brought up sales goals as well, because I think that's one of the things that we do when the new year comes, right? It's like setting the financial goals, like how many projects you'd be doing this year. But what would be a really good way to set a realistic goal? Because I think it's really hard to gauge sometimes. I think for someone who's been working for a while, you can look at a historical data. But for the newer stagers, where they just started, it's really hard to figure that out. Like what would be a It is. And you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. And maybe what you do is you start and you are extremely conservative. What if I could do, you know, I don't know, two stagings a month? What if I now can move up to three? You've got to start somewhere, even if it's with one or two and start building. You can look around and, you know, Pick the brain of some of the people around you in your area who do it if possible. Go on into Facebook groups and ask some of the questions. When you first started, how many did you get? It's just like with anything else. We kind of have to say we do it, and then we just have to pound doors. But as far as creating 
an analysis or a spreadsheet, you know, to, to physically show us the numbers, I would say start very conservatively. And so it is, you know, it's not always common that your first year in business, you're making all the money you want to make. It is definitely, it's a growth model, right? So you start with what you know, and then you fill in the blanks with what you don't know. But let me say this, Cindy, and I think you would agree. I'm learning something new about my business every day. And this is 20 years in um, entrepreneurship for me. And I'm still learning every single day. And so if you're waiting until you know it all, or if you're waiting until there's no risk, that never really happens. At some point, you've got to step out with what you do know and know that you will fill in the blanks for what you don't know. But even writing down, I have a lot of my coaching clients write down everything you know on the left side of the paper and then write, you know, here's what I don't know on the right. Some of those things you may be able to say, like, I don't know how many jobs I could get. I don't know this. And then that gives you a place to start working from. And hopefully at some point we move it from the right column to the left column. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think the other challenge is that the newer stages have, it's really hard to find out what exactly their competitors may be charging. Do you have any advice on that? Well, I mean, if your competitors in your direct area will not share and talk to you or they don't have pricing on their websites or anything, the best thing you can do is then just start talking to other people around you, maybe who are a couple of towns over, a couple of cities over, who are in a similar socioeconomic area. You know what I mean? They won't feel as threatened. And so finding those people online, I know a lot of times I connect people that are in totally different states and they are much more free to share. The other thing you can do is you can look in your community and ask yourself, are there other types of jobs or service um, industries that are similar to what I do and how are they paid, right? So like an electrician can look at how similar things are done in plumbing instead of if every electrician won't tell them. So we can start to find other jobs that are kind of similar to what we do and look at what's happening for those. People will share that because you're not in that, you know, industry. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. A lot of times I ask people to ask their real estate agent because they hire yeah. stagers all the time. They would know what, what is the market rate. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you just start to look for different ways to get the information. And, and honestly, you just got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. One of the things too, that I think a lot of people don't think about when they're just thinking about profit there, again, there are two profits, gross profit and net profit and gross profit is what we get. It's the profit that you get when you subtract your cost of goods from your total sales or income, but net profits, what we get to put in our pocket and walk away with, right. And pay our taxes with and our 401k and profit in the company. And so it is possible to start gathering information on what your operating expense costs are going to be. Even if you don't know some of the others, there are certainly fixed costs that come with having a business, hosting for the internet, cell phone, you know, all those different things. So you can start keeping track of all of that. What is the best way for a business owner to keep track all their expenses and income? Well, I'm a lover of online accounting software. And so the majority of my clients use QuickBooks. There are some that use other project management tools that have it built in that accounting software. But I I just believe that accounting software is so much more robust and thorough than keeping it in a shoebox or in some type of an online spreadsheet. And let me tell you why. 
first of all, if you have nothing but a shoebox, certainly move up to the spreadsheet, right? That's a step forward. <laughs> I used to be in the shoebox. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never been the shoebox. I think I started with a spreadsheet because I knew I had to see it. I, I certainly didn't start with QuickBooks. But you can move from the shoebox to the spreadsheet. Like that's a nice jump. But here's the thing. Most people don't know enough about Excel or other spreadsheets like that to write robust reports to be able to look at their data sliced and diced multiple ways. And that is the beauty of QuickBooks or some other Zero Sage, FreshBooks. I mean, there, there's a list of them, right? Yep. And so when you have it in an accounting software package, you can run reports that slice and dice your data and look at, like I can, within a click, look at how much of I, I did it right before we got on. What is my year-to-date accrual? What's my year-to-date cash? How am I doing for the quarter, even though we're, you know, a few days in? Or how does it look if I'm last quarter? How does this year compare to last year? Like the data is just, it is um, dynamic and I can pull it and look at it and start making decisions. And so if we're not keeping up with that data, how do we even know if we have a profit margin? How do we even know if we made money? You know, how do we know if our pricing is working for us or if it is not? You got to sit down and take hours with a pen and paper and a calculator and figure it out. If you do it any other way outside of one that has robust reporting and is keeping up with all of it. And then it makes it so much easier at the end of the year to just hand it to the accountant to do your taxes and, you know, you get to just walk away. Yeah, I agree with that. And so what are some of the numbers that you keep tracking and what reports are you running in QuickBooks? Yeah. So, you know, for me, the numbers that I look at, there are certainly a list of metrics, KPIs, right? Mm -hmm. Performance indicators, key performance indicators. And the ones I always look at, and I look at mine all the time, I look at total income. Mm -hmm. I want to know how much money is coming into the company, whether by product or by service. I want to know my cost of goods, how much is going out of the company that is related to client purchases. And then I want to know my gross profit. So let me say this on gross profit margin. One of the things you and I've talked about before, if you are a product based or cost of goods heavy company, right? So product heavy instead of service heavy, it is usually suggested that your gross profit margin be somewhere between 40 and 60% of total sales. If you are more service related, your cost of goods are somewhere between 20 and 25% and your gross profit margin is somewhere between 75 and 80 or 85%, right? Because you don't have as much product that's going out the door and you're more service-based. I've yeah. seen some service-based stagers that were up in 85 to 88% gross profit margin. That's great. But- Theirs gets smacked later under the expenses if it's not careful, because then you've got money. So yes, you've got profit in the company, but then we're pulling some of that money and maybe repurchasing inventory. And so your inventory is a number that you need to be able to keep up with. That balance sheet needs to show all the inventory that you have on it as a stager, because that is an asset of the company, right? It's a piece of furniture that we're using over and over and over until it is depreciated. We're going to be looking at what are our accounts payable and accounts receivable, meaning what money do we have on the books that somebody owes us or that we owe that has not yet been paid or received. All of those numbers matter. And then at the end of the day, the number I want to also look at is net profit, meaning after every expense has come out 
of the income that my company has earned, how much is left that goes towards some type of owner benefit? So either profit in the company, you know, paying my own income taxes, paying me a salary or going into 401k or something like how much is actually left at the end of the day. And then lastly is debt. We always want to be able to look at our debt and to make sure that we are paying that down and we don't have interest. And again, even just, just watching to make sure that nothing showed up on the credit card that we didn't put on the credit card, just watching all of those details and numbers. And so when you have an online accounting system, you know, that is kind of encouraging you monthly to reconcile what it does is it allows you Cindy to find any discrepancies quickly instead of waiting to the end of the year and trying to figure out what happened in March of last year, which we're not going to usually remember. Right. Yeah. I think with staging is a bit of an interesting industry because it, in a way we have both service and product as well, especially yes. when someone grows their businesses, they might start actually selling product at wholesale or, you know, whatever. So how do you determine what would be the right like percentage of profit margin for that? Yeah, I think first is determining what type of business you have. Is it product? Is it service? We also, a lot of my clients that are similar in that in, in the interior design, that sector, we look at theirs the same way because some of it is pure service and some of it's product driven and some is right in the middle. And so what we start to do is make sure that number one, they have a fair markup and a reasonable profit margin on product. And in most cases, their service fees or right, their service income, it drops through at almost 100% profit margin. And so then we merge the two together. And in that case, we never want your profit margin, if possible, to drop below 40%. Because when it starts dropping below 40%, no matter your model, you are working really, really hard. That means that you are top heavy, cost of good product heavy. And so if we can keep it above 40%, we're doing better. Some businesses require that it be higher. I'm not saying you can't run a business if your profit margin is 20 and 30%, but I'm telling you it's harder, right? Yeah. And so with staging, there is a huge amount of service-based income. It's very income driven by service, even if there's product involved. And so, you know, we would just do a balancing act. Here's how you also know if it works. Are you able to work the amount of time that you need to work doing what you need to do to make the salary and the profit that you need to make? So again, we backward engineer to make sure that you are within reasonable ranges for the model that you have. There's not a one size fits all. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, I think one of the most common question I always get from Stager is like, what is that magic percentage number? Um, that we need to use as home stagers to hit that ideal profit margin. And I think you just answered that question. Like it really, it really depends. I, I really always say that this is a really great conversation you need to have with your CPA and your bookkeeper because you really need to look at how your business structured and what are your expenses and how you're making money. It just really all depends on your business model and how you run your business. Right. So, so let's jump into that for just one second. Say you're walking in and you are doing more of what I'm going to call the walk and talk staging, or you're just walking in and moving things around that's already there in an occupied home and, and you're setting the stage for that, right? That is almost completely service-based. I would tell you your gross profit margin is going to be very different than somebody who goes into a completely empty house, brings everything out of a warehouse, has five you know, people on staff and two moving trucks show up, they're not going to look the same. 
the income's going to be very different, but the numbers are going to fall through that business very differently. And so they both work. It's just finding out what works for you. And again, even if you are going in and doing the walk and talk, you're not doing the empty staging, your expenses could be crazy and you still could not bring home money. So there are two places that we usually get hit cost of goods and then operating expenses. Both of them are negatives, if you will. If we were looking at this as a sheet, they're both subtractions. So they are taking the money away that has come in. They have to be limited. Even if you've got a great profit margin, if you oversell or, or overspend, it's still going to get eaten up. I've seen people with lower profit margins who held their expenses to just a minimum and they just killed it at the end with profit. So it is all a balancing act from the top to the bottom. I love that. I think profit margin is so important because I think when I first started my business, I really focused on the net, not the gross. And I think it's really important to really think about how exactly can we, like, in a way, trim the fat from the balance sheet. Like, how can we decrease the cost and improve our profit margin? Right. And, you know, if we're not watching that first profit margin, which is the gross margin, that's where you start. Start at the top. Am I making what I need to make? Am I charging what I need to charge? If I am and I have enough work, then my total income is going to be good. The next step down, if you're thinking of a P&L or an income statement, would be looking at cost of goods. If I am selling something to a client, number one, am I buying the best product that I can for the price range that I have to buy? And am I marking it up appropriately so that I am making the money for the time, the effort, the energy, and all of the work that needs to go into sourcing and selling that product? If I've done those two things right, then my gross profit is going to be fair and reasonable. So if it's product-based, it's going to be between 40 and 60%. Then what I have to do is look at what are all the costs associated for the operating of my company. And then it comes out of that as well. And then what's left is you know, what we get as the owner. So it's either our pay and I'm just talking about a straight flow through here. It's our pay and our profit and all of that. So at any point, if we didn't charge the right amount, our income is going to be off. If we didn't mark it up properly or we overbought or we didn't manage the product, we're going to screw up cost of goods, which then both of those are going to take a hit to the gross profit. Then if you come down and we are just buying willy nilly anything and we're going out buying steak dinners and running up meals and entertainment, or we're not watching the expenses and we accidentally paid a mover twice or we did something wrong, then what that's going to do is it's going to hit net profit. So there is this trickle down all the way down that income statement, which yet again is why if we don't have some type of software to look at it and manage it, we won't even know it until it is so late that we're in terribly bad habits and could get in trouble. Right. And so when you have new clients coming to you, start working with you, um, mm -hmm. and you're looking at their financials for the very first time, what are some of the main things that you're looking for to figure out if their company is healthy or not? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm certainly going to, there are two documents I'm going to ask for right off the bat. And I'm going to ask for a profit and loss statement or income statement. I'm usually going to ask for it in cash and accounting. And I'm going to do the same for the balance sheet. And I'm going to start walking down it and I'm going to start looking at, first I'm going to start looking at percentages. What percentage is cost of goods to total sales? What percentage gross profit to total sales? What percentage is our expenses to gross profit, what expense, you know, I'm just walking all the way down and looking at, then I'm going to dig in deeper and I'm going to start looking at 
what does it say? What are their income streams? Is it service and product? How much did they make on product and how much went out the door and cost of goods on product? So what is the markup there? Is that healthy? Is that fair? Is that reasonable? So I'm going to break it apart, even though they've got it all combined in one. Then I'm going to start walking through expenses and I'm going to go, does this seem high for the type of business and the size of business that they have? And I'll walk through that. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to head over to the, I'm going to also look at it, like I said, in accrual, because that's going to give me information on maybe what's in the books, but hasn't yet come in because there is a difference in cash and accrual accounting. And then I'm going to step over and say, let me look at that balance sheet. And the balance sheet, Cindy, is what most bankers and business people want to look at, but it's the one that we look at the least usually if we don't understand what it's telling us. And what it is, is it is a balance sheet because it is balancing your assets and your liabilities. And so I'm going to start looking. Are your short-term assets larger or smaller than your short-term liabilities? Meaning a short-term liability might be a credit card. Is the amount on the credit card higher or lower than the amount you have in the banks is hard cash. That's going to give me information. I'm going to start looking at debt. What do you owe? Do we have sales tax on there for any product that you sold that's not yet been paid? You know, does it look like we have debt in the company? How does that look like it's being managed? What does it look like the owner's been taking as an owner's draw? Can the company afford it? All of those things is what we start looking at. I do want to ask you about debt, actually. I think it's a really interesting topic because I think for me, I'm fairly conservative. Like I was very conscious about not being credit card debt when we first start building inventory. I was definitely like shop once only week we get paid kind of thing. So what's your opinion about debt? Like should we go out and try to leverage it, you know, by asking for a bank loan um, or a loan from a friend or should we... Like, what do you think about it? Bootstrap it. Well, again, I don't think it's um, one answer for everybody, right? I do. I'm like you. I am more risk averse. So I am a lot more cautious in what I do and how I do it. I am not totally opposed to debt, but I think we have to be careful about debt. Just like you wouldn't go out, hopefully, and buy a house that's more than you can afford. We don't want to go out and take on more debt than the business can afford to pay back. And so we really have to do and look at debt ratios and all of those things, like how much income is coming in, how long is it going to take me to pay it off. And anytime we take on debt, we're making a choice not to do something else because debt ties our hands, mm -hmm. right? It ties your hands. And so your hands are going to be tied one way or another. It's how, do you, how are you going to do it? Sometimes having very smart debt, like, Let's say, for example, when I first started my business, let's say I put in $5,000 to get it, kick it off. Well, that is a loan to the company from me, Michelle, and the company owes me back. That's a debt I'd be willing to take, right? As, as the company, I would be willing to take a loan from myself. And then I work to pay that back. That's not my salary. That's paying me back for putting the money in so that the business can um, be created. And that money might go towards building a website, getting some marketing collateral, those types of things. I don't have a problem with that. If I were then all of a sudden thinking, I think I'd like to go from a walk and talk staging to whole house staging, right? To empty property staging. And I need to take out $500,000 so I can go buy all the furniture to do about 35 homes a month when I'm currently doing two a month. I would say that is super risky, right? Right. And so it, it really needs to be done with a plan and an idea of how do I pay it back? Because I, I am certainly not of the opinion that we take out debt 
assuming that we won't pay it back. We'll just go bankrupt if it doesn't work like that. I'm not of that opinion at all. So I think it needs to be something that is healthy, something that the business can sustain and that there is enough profit in the company to cover. I totally agree with that. For me, I think part of our job as a business owner is that we need to be responsible to our company. I mean, even if you're a one-person company, I still really encourage you to think about that way just because one day your your company may grow and then you may have employees. So I think it's really important to get into good habits early on to really think about what are some of the risks that we have as a business owner and how can we prevent that. Right. I would agree with that. And I also want to talk about pricing because this is, I mean, a hot topic, I think, with stagers or actually with any business owners in general. So when it comes to pricing, how can we feel more confident about our price? I think it's funny. On my podcast, I um, just had my one year and I was talking about the fact that the word confidence and this idea of confidence has shown up. And if not every podcast the word itself has shown up more than any other word in all my podcasts. So in all of 50 something podcasts, that word keeps coming up, confidence, confidence, confidence. And first of all, I would say confidence comes from a couple of things. It comes from knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know and how to get help and knowing that you're not alone. Those three things, if we can think about it in those three ways, it will propel us to keep moving forward. If at any point one of those feels shaky, then we're going to feel shaky. So again, those are knowing that you know what you know, right? Yep. The other is knowing what you don't know and, and how to get help. And then the third is knowing the people that will help you. Because if I know that I know how to do this, I'm going to feel confident going in and do it. If I feel like I'm not real sure about this, but I got, a, I got some people behind me. And then the third is they show up and actually help me. I can make it work. Like I feel like there's almost nothing I can't do right? Within reason, if I've satisfied those three things. And so to me, the way to get confidence in our pricing is not to go borrow somebody else's price list. If we just go take somebody else's pricing, I have yet to see people show up and have confidence in that because it's not theirs. And so I'm going to suggest that we do the work to figure out who we are in business. You know, I think you and I both have talked about Simon Sinek's Know Your Why. Mm -hmm. Start with why, that book. Know why you're doing what you're doing. Know what value you bring. Know what sets you apart. Know what you know. Know where you need help and then have a tribe to come behind you. I can remember one of my answers would always be when I was in front of a client and they would ask me something that I was, I'm not going to say clueless about, but I, I honestly didn't know the answer and didn't feel like I could say it. I wasn't going to BS it and I needed to say something, right? And I didn't want to be like, oh gosh, I have no clue because that doesn't come off it to build confidence for them and me. So what I learned to say was, you know, Cindy, that is a really great question. And there's probably two or three ways that that could be solved. Let me go research, which is the best for you. Right. And every person ate it up. Oh, Michelle, that is so awesome that you would go, you know, research what's best for me. I didn't lie. There usually are two to three ways most problems can be solved. And I don't know what, which one is best because I don't even know which two to three to go after. Um, so let me go do some research and get back to you. And every time they appreciated it and it calmed me immediately. And I didn't feel like I was having to get in front of myself, which always caused a problem, right? Yeah. So the way we get confident behind our pricing is we first get confident in ourselves, in what we bring to the table, in the work that we're doing, in the quality of the service that we're offering, the value, 
all of it. We have to be so not cocky, but we really have to know what we bring to the table and know what we have yet to offer, right? If they were to ask, then you actually feel better. Like for example, if I went in and knew that this was the pricing in, a, in my staging area, I knew it because I'd seen the price list from every other person, but I didn't know how they did their job. I didn't know how they staged. I didn't know how they did customer service. I'm still shaky. I might know a number, but I don't know the work that went behind the number. And when I know it all or am working towards it or have at least identified what I do know, it changes the game. That You build confidence a step at a time. I don't think you can learn it through osmosis. No, I totally agree. And also I think through experience as well and also just the way you carry yourself. Because I think sometimes I see people who can commend a lot of, I mean, a higher pricing it's because the confidence they exude and their work might not necessarily be better or worse than some than the competitor who's charging less, but they're confident in their abilities. And so that's why they dare to um, charge at a higher price. And I think that reflects on buyer psychology as well, because I mean, looking back at hiring, for example, like when we're hiring like a freelance copywriter some a girl her like her resume was great but she came in like i think 30% less than her competitors and so the first thing i thought about was like what is wrong like why are you charging so little it's definitely why don't you believe in yourself almost yeah and so kind of me was kind of like i would love to hire you but i'm scared because you're charging so much lower than someone else that's very true it's very true i read something there's been this hubbub going around in an article and an Instagram influencer who took some information and changed it up with her own affiliate links and all this stuff. And one of the comments that was inside the article made the comment about if you go in and you pay $200 for something that normally would cost thousands, why would we think that, you know, you're your goal of price shopping would end there. You probably are going to continue to price shop. And it's the same kind of thing. If we go in and we lowball something, people are just going to continue to price shop us on every single thing we're doing because we have opened the door to that. And that even comes into how we value ourselves and price ourselves if we were to either work for someone else or work for our own company. Yeah, I very agree with that. I mean, I, I think pricing is tricky, but the thing is that at the end of the day, if you know your numbers and you can back it up with evidence of your financial record, then right. you know that this is the right price you should be charging. Right, right. I, I have um, a class that I've taught for years, and it, we literally go through a two-day discovery process when I've taught it in person to figure out it. Again, it's like a puzzle that we take apart and we look at each independent piece, the value of each piece. And then we, when we put all the pieces together, you can like watch the light bulbs go off. And so sometimes we look at pricing as just a number, but that number was made up of something. And when you understand all the pieces and parts, just like we talked about earlier with profit margins and all, we can take it apart, deconstruct it and reconstruct it. I change people's businesses like that all the time just by saying, oh, you don't want to price by the hour. You want to price value pricing or project pricing. Okay, let's go look at the hour. Let's break it apart to all its pieces and parts. Let's add it all together. What, what else do we need to add in? Boom, here's how you do the other one. So they're all constructed. If we know the pieces and parts, we can do it in any way that works for us. We just have to know the pieces and parts. 
That's great. And so do you have any advice for home stagers? What happens when the clients come back and they have pricing objections? Well, I think a lot of that, and it happens, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that comes down to what is the next conversation you're going to have? Do you want your business to be compared to another business on price alone? So what I would probably say is, wow, okay. So Cindy's pricing is different than my pricing. You know, what I'd love to do is find out if we are offering the same product and service. Is Cindy using designer type furniture or is she using retail bargain basement furniture? Is Cindy doing this? You know, here's what I'm doing. First I was, I'm going to make sure that we are comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And I am going to stress value, quality, and service because if it really comes down, there's a hundred dollar difference and they're going to balk over that. I'm just going to let them go because yeah. if they're going to balk over that, they're going to fight me through the entire project. Exactly. So I think that's a really good point. What are some of the red flags that you can see from a potential client? Right. I, I always ask people, what are your deal breakers? I also think that when we go in to present any type of contract for our work, service or product, whatever you start the conversation with is what you think is most important. So if your first conversation with them is about the cost or the price of what it is for you to do the job, you have taught them that that is the number one consideration. I try to talk about price third. I try to start with value and quality and then price. Because if I can get you to agree with me on the value of what we're doing and then the quality of what we're doing, most people are willing to pay for it if they have the same value and quality statements that I do. If we're already off on value and quality, then price is going to show up. But if I start with price, then that's the first thing that they're going to compare. And I don't want it to be the first thing. I want it to be tertiary because I want primary to be value. I want you to feel valued, that you just see the service, you see the quality of the furniture, the quality of the staging, the quality of the teardown, the quality of the whole process, right? And if I can get you to buy into the ease of the value of the stress relief of all of that, and that it's going to be gorgeous and beautiful in your home and that it is going to sell it like all of it. What are you not willing to pay for that? Now price is looked at within the context of the full job. But if we start with price, we're looking at it under a microscope or kind of in a vacuum by itself. And what is a price in a vacuum if you don't know what came with it? Right. That'd be like saying that car is expensive and that car is cheap, but you don't even know what two cars you're comparing. Yeah, no, I love this because I think it's so important. Before I become a home stager, I was a real estate agent. I was a buyer's agent specifically. And I remember when I was going through training with my broker, he always talked about the order of you showing houses. If you think these house you want to push for, for the buyers to buy, and you're showing four houses that day, you should put it second to last. You don't want it to mm -hmm. be the first one off the bat because people can forget about it. You don't want to be the last one either. So the second to last one is usually the more ideal placement for that ideal home that you think the buyer is going to be perfect for. And I think it's the same way with gushing with clients. Like I love that you pointed out if you start the conversation with pricing, then it's really all about pricing. Like that's the thing that the client's naturally going to focus on. And I just think it's a lose-lose game, to be honest, because 
if the client's gonna keep coming back, I think it's very natural client's gonna be like, oh, can you just do it for like a hundred dollar cheaper? I mean, everybody wanna pay less money. No one wants to pay more money, right? So I think there needs to be a very thoughtful way of framing when you come to discussing with client. Like, I love that you bring out, you know, talking about value and quality. Like, what are some of the value that I'm bringing to the table? Because I think that's really the key thing we want to convey. And that's really something that we can do to differentiate ourselves in a competitive market. Right. And if you look at the way the world is going these days, everything is going to service oriented. I mean, could you even have imagined as a little girl, I couldn't have of being on a computer and typing in my grocery list and driving up and having somebody come out to my car and put it in my car for me. And I don't even have to go in and shop and pull it off the shelf myself. And so people are willing to pay for that, right? They're willing to pay for other people to do these tasks for them. That's really what they're asking us to do. And I'm not suggesting that, that they're on the same level of ability. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we are such a fast paced world that we are willing to pay people for value. We're willing to pay them for stress relief. We're willing to pay them for doing things so that we can go do something else. And that's the things we need to highlight. It's not just about your ability to stage. It's about the ability to sell that house. It's about the ability to take the stress off of them. It's about the ability to say, I got this and I'm going to set it up in a way that's going to make your home look the best way it can. So somebody else is going to kind of want to come in and see themselves in it, you know? Yeah. That is a huge service. It is. And I think a lot of times stagers are like, well, I don't understand, you know, like I presented my spiel, like my proposal or whatnot. And I don't understand why the client's not hiring me or they're coming back with all these objections. But I think a lot of times it may be because the way we present it or the way we frame it. Right. Because ultimately we have to show them like because clients don't understand, like we are in our business day in and day out. We understand what is good value, what is good staging and what good staging can do. But clients who are not in this business or even like real estate agents, sometimes they just don't know, they don't understand until we show it to them. So I think it's, it's a really important lesson in communication that we really have to figure out how to make our clients understand that this is the value that we're bringing to the table and this is what makes us different than our competitors other than simply pricing. I agree with you. Yeah. So I think one of the things about pricing is also that how do I figure out what is my self-worth? Like, how do I know how much I'm worth in terms of dollars and cents? Yeah, and again, I mean, that's going to be breaking it down. It's first of all, finding out what is your time worth? You know, if you could, I'll give you a prime example. So I worked in corporate, you know, had a job where I was making over six figures. I knew I could not walk into design or any aspect of, of anything under this umbrella of staging design, whatever. I wasn't going to walk in and make that immediately. So then I had to start by asking myself, how much can I make and how much am I willing to make that first year, that third year, that fifth year? And then at some point there may not even be a cap right? It may be that my goal was to get back up to that six figure income, but how much time am I giving myself to do it? And does the business model that I have allow me to get there? I think all of that fits in. When it comes down to what you're worth in dollars and cents, it 
that really also comes down to what do you believe about yourself? How confident are you? What does your marketing look like? Because you may be like, I think humans are worth a heck of a lot just because we're born. Okay. And I don't think that the amount of money we make, it makes us worthy or not worthy. But I will say that the way we build our businesses, the way we market our businesses, the way we strategize within our businesses, that is what provides us with an income. And if we don't like that income, we have to change the choices that got us there. Right. And then when you're working with your clients, what are some of the common mistakes that you see business owners make when it comes to building profits? Not looking at it, not knowing feeling like they have to give, 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 work around everybody else's schedule and not their own. I see them working outside of their own defined process. And that's when we usually get smacked um, and not knowing the return on investment. So they might spend money on a marketing opportunity thinking it sounds great or because the, let's be honest, when somebody's selling you a marketing opportunity, they've got a marketing person selling you a marketing opportunity. So they're doing a good job at it. But if we don't even keep up with the ROI or the return on that investment, how do we even know we got any clients from all of that output of time or money? I see a lot of people going in to try to do network slash marketing, and they're so busy networking among their own peers, the people that will never hire them, and they don't spend equally the amount of time they need to in front of the people that could hire them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think a lot of it is about return on investment and really kind of recording and also testing to see what would be some of the best way to test your market. Right. And if you think of return on investment, I mean, that, that goes way past our marketing. That is a return on investment for how I'm going to invest in my employee, how I'm going to invest in the vendors that I work with. How am I going to invest in myself and my own education? So return on investment is a term that we need to think of again, broad and wide like profit. I'm just like profit. I think there's profitability of speech, profitability of good communication. You know, you can lose a job if you communicate poorly. So all of those things we can think of in a a kind of a broader light and not with, you know, right down like a little microscope and think it's just so contained in one place in our company. Right. And what would you say are some of the ways to increase profits in our business? Yeah. I love that one. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think the way to increase profit is to sell the right product or service at the right price and then to manage everything about it. Because again, if you go back to the PL and you walk down it, I mentioned a minute ago, if I've got the right product or service, meaning the one that is right for me and right for my target market. So if I'm selling the right product and service to the right client at the right price. So now I've taken care of the top of my PL. So that takes care of total income and cost of goods because I said at the right price. So all the way down to gross profit, I'm doing good. Then what I do is I manage, 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 manage. And that means I reduce expenses. That's actually how you become more profitable. They say that you get what you inspect, not what you expect. And so that again is why having some type of an accounting software package allows you to constantly inspect, constantly look for the return on investment, constantly look that am I doing the right product, the right service to the right person at the right price. And am I managing it? And if we just keep that little small kind of repetitive saying in our head, you'll, you'll usually come out. Okay. I love that. I never heard that before. I think that's amazing. And then how often would you say that we should inspect our finance? <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I like to look at mine at least once a week. 
not the entire thing, but I like to take a glance at it at least once a week because if I have weekly sales goals, I want to see if I hit my sales goal because if not, I need to adjust next week's sales goal. I just got finished doing all of my reconciliations. I am, I believe once a month, we need to reconcile all of our bank accounts and all of our credit cards. But if we are just at least every week, max every two weeks, taking a look at that PL, taking a look at the balance sheets, making sure nothing seems off or wrong, that we're hitting those sales goals, I, I think that's usually enough. And so when you're looking at it every week, are, you, are there key numbers you're looking at every single week to make sure that you're healthy? Yeah, I, I'm just looking again at all of my margins. I'm looking at what were my total sales for the week? What kind of gross profit margin do I have? What expenses came out of it? And then I'm looking at it for the entire month and the quarter and the year every week when I look at it too. Because, you know, you can't look at any number in isolation and know how it fits in. Yeah. And I love that you're doing weekly sales school. I think that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I've even been down at certain parts of my career down to a daily sales goal. Like how many people do I need to call today? Right. If I know that three out of five people say yes, and I need to have six people join me to do something, or I need six new staging projects, then I probably need to call about 10 people. Yeah. When you start breaking the numbers down, you actually are empowered because you can make all these numbers work for you. Your financial numbers work with your marketing numbers. And how do you come up with your own sales goal? Are you looking at historical data? Like what did we do last year this time? Or how do you know? Yeah, I do it from the backwards financials. So again, what is the salary? What is the profit? What do I think my overhead is going to be? I walk backwards and create a sales goal. Because if just creating a sales goal, if I don't have historical data, it's just like a number in the air. So I have to tie it down. Think of it as a hot air balloon. If I don't have it tethered, it's just flying away and it means nothing to me. And so knowing this is how much money I want to make, this is what I want to do. This might be my reach goal or my stretch goal. It's just like when you apply for colleges, here's my safe school and here are my stretch goals. You're going to try to stretch. And even if you don't get in, it's okay. You've got a safe place. I do my financials every year that same way. Here's my safe place and here's where I really want to stretch. Now, what extra things would I have to do with extra service? How many more phone calls would I need to make if I want the stretch to work? But that says that I am actively campaigning to have the work, not sitting and waiting on somebody to call me. Right. And so if we are working with a bookkeeper and a CPA, what are some of the questions we need to ask them? Or like, do you maybe have any tips on how to find these people that are going to be suitable working with you as a business owner? Yeah. So in most cases, we work more day-to-day -day with bookkeepers. They're the ones that do the in and out transactions on a day-to-day -day basis in our businesses. And then the accountant is usually the one that does more tax prep and maybe a bit more advisory in nature. So I like to talk to both of them, right? And find out first and foremost, do you even understand the industry that I'm in? If you don't understand the staging industry, the design industry, if you don't understand these things, it is really hard for you to advise me and to help me know how to properly allocate things within my own company and what type of reporting I might want to look at. So it doesn't mean they can't learn, but are they open to learning and do they really understand the industry? I like to meet, of course, if you're working with a bookkeeper, you would want to meet with them, you know, either weekly, biweekly, monthly, based on the amount of transactions you had and what that relationship was with your CPA. I would want you to meet with them at least quarterly just to make sure that your business is paying the taxes it needs to pay, that it is moving forward, that nothing is 
off or out and that you're covering your 401k or whatever other, you know, decisions you've made with them in your company that you need to do. So, I, I mean, the questions I like to ask are, how often do we meet? How do you communicate? What do you use? Are you able to log into my books? Um, how do you support me and how can I support you so that you can help me? What are the things that you do? What are the things you don't do? Where do I need to do it myself? You know, because not every bookkeeper and every accountant works the same way, just like every stager doesn't. Exactly. I think that's a really, really good answer. So our show is coming to an end. So my last question for you is what is the number one tip you'll give to home stagers when it comes to creating a profitable home staging business? Well, I truly believe that, and, and it's the title of my podcast, but profit is a choice. My tip is to choose to be profitable, which means choose to look at every choice and every decision in your business under a microscope and not just singularly, but in conjunction with others, because our choices have ripple effects. And so if we're looking at the numbers and we're choosing profitability, it means we're going to choose to, to put everything on the table for review, and then we're going to review it. I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show today. That was great. You're welcome, Cindy. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by SocialLightVault.com. Are you overwhelmed with the marketing your home staging business? Stop wasting time worrying or wondering if you're doing the right things. From social media to email newsletter that get attention of listing agents, SocialLightVault makes marketing simple and effective. You don't need a huge marketing budget. You don't need a huge audience either. You just need real marketing tools that work and the right sales funnel to deliver new leads, even when you aren't working. The team at Socialite specializes in marketing for home stagers. Get started today by going to socialitevault.com. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging.